Well, obviously, I'm using old-style wired stuff today, like Battlestar Galactica. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. No new taxes. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. I mean, the trip that President Biden took to Kiev, as many of you reported on, was uh, historic. It was brave. Many of you talked about how we heard the, the sirens wailing uh, in the background as the president was on the ground. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs, and our guest eventually is Eli Lake, and we'll talk about Ukraine. Before that, oh, lots of stuff. So let's have ourselves a podcast. We never get bored. It's the Ricochet Podcast. Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? It's number 631. How do we get this far, this many podcasts? Well, because of people like you, as they say on National Public Radio. People like you who joined Ricochet at ricochet.com and discovered the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. Haven't gone there yet? Ah, uh, what's stopping you? We'll talk about that a little bit later in excruciating detail. But for the moment, hello, welcome. Peter Robinson in California, which is not sunny. And Rob Long, peripatetic as he is, possibly in Gotham. I'm James Lilacs in Minneapolis, which somehow survived the epic storm that did not exactly turn out to be as epic as we wished. And oh, how disappointed we are for that. Gentlemen, welcome. How's your day going? Uh, I am in Santa Barbara, which three oh, nice. five days a year, nine years out of a decade, is the most beautiful place on the planet. Mm-hmm. I happen to be here the one day, two days maybe in a decade where it's flood warning, high wind advisory. <laughs> They're calling what's happening up in the mountains a blizzard. Uh, our friend, the Blue Yeti, was planning to drive over from Ojai, but is socked in in Ojai. And um, honestly, I'm loving it. I'm in a hotel just a block from, the, actually not even, uh, across the street is the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel nostalgic for the East Coast, because for the first time since I've lived in California, the Pacific looks atlantic there are some rollers coming in it's that deep mottled slightly threatening green instead of the usual sapphire blue of the pacific on a sunny day out here so um uh i suppose most of the people who came to santa barbara this weekend aren't getting their money's worth but i'm loving it it was like that when i was there a while ago too Really but I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it, the the sea was choppy. It was angry that morning, my friends. Uh, but what interested me more was finding the original Sambo's restaurant, which is on the street, oh, that right. the ocean. Um, it's not Sambo's anymore, but it's where the chain began. And that's a little piece of childhood nostalgia that I can't can't ever give up. Rob, you are on the other side of the continental United States. <sighs> I I am, but speaking, I mean. Uh... <laughs> I remember when um, they changed the name of that restaurant. Oh, well, they really they to Sam's. They, oh. Well, it's it's a complicated story, and no one understands it, but it's a woman. But yeah, they had a problem because Sambo's was a contraction of the two owners' names put together. Um, yeah, but, they but did, and that's not... They, but it sounds no. Like. Well, Rob, no, it's spelled S A M B E A U X. 
Yeah, right. The, the, <laughs> the, the French version. Um, but even in the decor of the place itself, they did not reference the little black Sambo story that a lot of people grew up with. He was Indian. No, he that's was, right. And he had, a, he had a turban, and he was up against a Bengal tiger and the rest of it, and there were various pictures that show you. He, he turned into butter, right? Was, he, he turned the, the tiger into he, butter. Right, right. But he, the, right. So they, they turned him into ghee. Uh, but uh, but yeah, but eventually they just couldn't get past the name and the whole thing fell apart. And they a lot of them right. got rebranded as Denny's. And if you're a fan of commercial archaeology, right. you can spot an old Sambo's restaurant to this day by the shape of the sign or the particular Googie style California. And that was the great thing was when they built Sambo's in Fargo, North Dakota or Cleveland, or anywhere, they, they imported to these places right. embassies of California futuristic 60s optimistic architecture that was fun. And I drive around now, and I look at what the you know, the fast food restaurants look like, and they're all black boxes. Taco Bell is a black box. McDonald's is a sober black box. Steak and Shake and whatever is a black box. There's no fun and whimsy in these places anymore. But that's just me. So, yes. There is a place... Uh- let me send you. I'm gonna send. Come here in L.A., um, James. There is a place as you're leaving, uh, kind of on the way to the airport on the west side, called Dinah's. Uh-huh. D-I-N-A-H. Okay. Uh, and Dinah's still has that kind of architecture. Dinah's still has like fried chicken. It still has this gigantic, snaky S-shaped counter that goes all mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. Dinah's is still pretty much the last one. Uh, there was a place in L.A. called Sh- L.A. was like the headquarters yep. of these places called Ships. Shipped. Right. And uh, Ships was famous because um, the owner of Ships decided, I think in 1952, that, you know, everyone wanted their toast done a certain way and they wanted it hot. And there's no way to get hot toast the way you want it at to your table. So he's he put a toaster on every table. Mm-hmm. So the corner of Olympic and the La Cienega, and they tore it down. And there was a minor protest. I think now they wouldn't be allowed to tear it down. And uh, and I don't even I don't know what they put up. It's like a gas station now. Well, yeah. what's the famous? What's the name of the famous burger place over on Pico that's still sort of old timey, or at least it was five or six years ago? Last time. Oh, I the Apple there. Pan. The Apple yes, Pan. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Yeah, good. Right. And that's yeah, still sh- there, right? Yeah, it's still there. That Apple Pan's still there. Yeah, there was Ships, there was Googie, which gave the name to the style of architecture. There was Coffee Dan's. There's a whole bunch of these, and there was one architect who did most of them, who had this vision, sort of the Morris Lapidus of the West Coast, of, of, of what the future restaurant should look like. And it spread nationwide eventually. It just defined a particular tail-fin, optimistic, jet-age, space-age sure, sure. aesthetic that I just absolutely adore. And it wasn't it wasn't valued for many years, and hence most of them were torn down and replaced you know, with gas stations or in and out or something like that. So tis a pity. Uh, well, should we get to the news of the world before we get to our speaking guest? Of, uh, speaking of changing Sambos to Sams. Yes. Roald Dahl, the, uh, the author beloved by many of uh, James and the Peach and the Fox and the, all the rest of it and the big monster guy, and got bowdlerized by the usual moral scolds. Apparently, I didn't know this, there are actually companies that you can hire to pour over your work to ensure that no harm, no violence is given by the text. And these people went through and removed a variety of things uh, from Dahl's work, most of which had to do with taking out the word fat and replacing it with something that wasn't as judgmental and fat phobic and the rest of it. Right. So surprisingly, there was pushback by people who said, uh, I'm 
sorry, that's literally Orwellian. You're changing the texts. <laughs> um, and as it turns out, the company, and the reason this happened was because the Dahl estate had sold rights to Netflix, and apparently Netflix wanted to prevent itself from pickets by the blue hairs and the nose rings. Uh, the company that was doing this has announced that readers will actually now be able to choose between the original and the edited versions of Dahl's work, which is, again, one more time, Red America has one set of books and Blue America has another. Yes, yes I, that's I, right. I, I, I mean, it's better, I suppose, than extirpating all future references to his original text, but I still don't like it. This is, I don't know. I, I, I want to say this is serious, but I mean, we stand in a kind of torrent of this kind of thing. So uh, on the, my immediate thought was, this is, if Raoul Dahl heard of this he, he would rise up and oh smite down the i mean it would just yeah. but it also undermines <laughs> the part of what's going on with Dahl. in my view i was thinking back to reading him and i came to him late he didn't penetrate upstate new york my little town until i was i think early teens in any event part of the pleasure was that you and Dahl were in on it together mm-hmm. that other books might be saccharine but Dahl knew the way the world really was. And the world wasn't always, always nice. It wasn't always saccharine. There was a dark little underside. And Dahl knew that, and he was letting you in on it. The, world was, was, yeah, the world was horribly anti-Semitic. Uh, well, that, as, as was he. Yeah. That is, that right. is it, yes, yes. You said that if, if Raul Dahl was alive right. today, if Raul Dahl was alive today to hear this, he'd blame the Jews. Yeah. I mean, he was not a nice guy. I know. Um, there's also stories of him, like, you know, when he was married to the actress Patricia Neal, and she had a stroke. And he was, um, uh, and he, she was in the uh, hospital recovering from a stroke. And he would come in. Um, and this is the uh, the legend. She, he would come in and kind of yell at her, say, get up, get up, come on. And he, bullied her but he sort of people were kind of was trying to restrain him my god let her recover but even she says he bullied me into recovery he was a tough guy um what's well, the, the good news here is that uh the, there's enormous amount of pushback on this from not from the usual suspects from people who are sort of generally kind of left wing and but also like people at Penn and places like that um that is really that's good news um the the weird news is like i don't know I don't know how you begin to fix a book like the, you know, the what is it, Charlie and I forget the name of the actual book, not the movie. It's like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I don't know how you actually fix it uh, if you're trying to boulderize it uh, or update it. It is, in fact, mean. It's in the hilarious. marrow. It's in the marrow of the work. That's oh my God. Point. It's so deeply embedded. And these children are so awful and their punishments are so just. And some of them, you just get a sense that they're not they're 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 not gonna they're not alive anymore, um, and it, it, it is an interesting thing. It's the the idea that you have to shield children from this is so weird, because they're gonna do it anyway. It's like if you've ever gone to one of those kids' soccer games where they're not supposed to keep score. You know, we're all just playing soccer, and then you ask any kid, any kid, what's the score, and they will tell you the score is four to zero. We're killing them. Right. If you ask any parent what the score is, is, oh, you know, well, I don't know, just everyone's having fun. They're just playing the game. But kids, like, 
there, there's one there's one group of, of of human beings alive today that no matter how hard you try you will not wokeify and that is a child you will never get a child to not notice a fat person to not notice a stupid person to not notice a glutton to not notice people's infirmities even embarrassingly like to not notice the guy in the wheelchair or the person with a funny lip or you, you just you'll never You'll never accomplish that. And the idea that you're going to try is so ridiculous. No, you can't, but they don't want it. It's not that it's not that they don't want them to notice. They want to internalize from the very possible earliest point in their lives that certain things are not to be said and these certain things that should not be thought. I mean, you can think it. But you can't yeah. think it aloud in your head. And so you have everybody internalizing all of these things that must not be said. Right. And you have a people who are compliant. When it, you know, I, mean, I mean, when we say literally Orwellian, by that I mean, you know, uh, the, yeah. the fellow was talking with Winston Smith in the cafeteria. And it's a, you know, it's a wonderful thing, the destruction of language. Remove the words and you remove the ability to conceive the ideas behind them. And so the, the whole thing about taking out the fat seems to be like like the revenge of people who themselves might be a tad on the XX, excess Abu Dupois side and are part of the whole fat acceptance, body healthy, all the rest of it, which is amusing because we've gone from the president's council on physical fitness where JFK wanted everybody you know to be out there doing jumping jacks to chicken fat. And to, to now to the point where, you know, we're encouraging people to applaud as stunning and brave the people who show up in fashion shots as grossly, morbidly obese. Uh, so it's it's an odd turn of events. But you're right. Rodney. I, I, one, before we leave Roald Dahl and the bottlerization of language. Right. Not just Dahl. It's happening in a more insidious way. And I will tell you a story, but I cannot name names and I'd better keep it pretty general. But I know a. Let us just say that there is a major academic figure who has written a textbook. And this textbook is the basic textbook and has been for over a decade in its subject. And it turns out that now the publisher is submitting this textbook to the little ants who go through and take out anything that's politically incorrect. And the major academic is stunned by this but he calls around and finds out, oh, yes, that happens to all textbooks. That's just the way it is these days. And it's breathtaking. So this is it's just this kind of, con- it's like the tide coming in and effacing. It is making us stupider. Yeah. I, I also, can I just go one more, um, one more spin in it? And probably this is one spin too far. <laughs> uh, one of the things we're doing um, in our you know, Ricochet Enterprise is we're doing sort of, we're putting together some longer form uh, podcast uh, series, right? And one of the ones I'm working on now is about really just the TikTok of COVID, you know, what we knew when and how it happened. And I have a couple uh, controlling, you know, metaphors I'm working on trying to like figure out how to describe this. One is sort of like a, a, a general countrywide panic attack. And the other is forgetting things we know, right? Yes. But the yes. other one I'm just thinking of now is the idea that once you say, especially fat, right? Once you say that, once you remove those words and the power of those words and you kind of sand off the edges, you end up looking at covid i mean this is i'm going too far but i'm not going that much too far you end up looking at covid and the people who are going to get covid and going to die from covid and you can't describe them because it's you're i'm not allowed to say 
obese people and old people. You have to come up with, well, uh, senior citizens, our nation's seniors. You have to come up with all these euphemisms that, I mean, I guess they're nice in a social setting and they might, you know, you might want to kind of like make a, a, a hilarious acid children's book into some pablum. I mean, I suppose there's, there's some damage, cultural damage there, and that's bad, and I'm against it. As somebody who writes for a living, I'm really against it. But on the other hand, there's also like this sort of dangerous other side of it, which is like I do need to be able to describe the people who do not, who should not be getting COVID, who should protect themselves from COVID. And I need to be able to describe them in a specific and, an, and as uh, even alarming way I can. And if I can't do that, if that's not allowed, then we're all in big trouble, right? Old people, people who do, people who lack chronological privilege is the way that you might want <laughs> yeah, to put it. Right, right. You know, and I, th- and I you know, I th- you think about this and you say, well, do I want to be old? You know, do I want, I'm going to go to the gym after this, for example. And the study said that people who went to the gym uh, had a much better chance of not having a bad COVID reaction and have a much better chance of not you know, being hospitalized right. for stuff because, uh, frankly, they move around and it's good for you to move around. But then you think, oh, I'm going to add 10 years to my life and they're going to be those 10 years where I'm sitting doddering around, walking around with a walker. Well, you know, what if it was possible to extend your lifespan and to feel younger at the same time? Well, according to a Harvard scientist and a Nobel Prize winning breakthrough, it is absolutely possible. How, you say, come on, how? By lengthening your telomeres, Mm, heard of those? Your telomeres protect your DNA, and they play a critical role in the aging process. But many of us, you know, you struggle with shortening telomeres, little tiny, not as long as they should be, thanks to stress and to unhealthy food and obesity. There, I said the word and more. That's why we recommend Youth Switch. Just came in the mail the other day, and I'm just keen to try it. Youth Switch is an all-natural, doctor-approved, and manufactured right here in America. Contains a potent blend of adaptogens that promote healthier telomeres and longer lifespans. It boosts your energy, and it can support regeneration of healthy organ systems as well. And you, you can try Youth Switch for yourself today, risk-free. How? Well, we're going to tell you. And by the way, you will receive a free bottle of Ageless Brain as a bonus. It's a great product to help you improve your focus and your memory in your mood. Oh, your mood. You'll have a better mood. you also have a greater attention span to read the four bonus ebooks that boost every aspect of your health and longevity as well. So how do you get this package? You go to youthswitchmd.com slash ricochet, and you can claim your supply of Youth Switch and all the five bonus gifts. That's youthswitchmd.com slash ricochet to order the Youth Switch package today. And we thank Youth Switch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. We thank Rob Long for giving me the most effortless segue ever. Well, before our guest shows up and we talk about the other side of the world, we should stay close at home and look at East Palestine. The story maintains, but a judge finally showed up. Did I pronounce his name right? I, uh, did he did he do what the Secretary of Transportation and such things is expected to do? And I say that because I've never known the Secretary of Transportation to show up and do something like this. He was pushed into it, wasn't he? I mean, he, three week politics of it. Well, Trump made him do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It, it is a you know it is the sign that you you um it, it's one of those stories that takes on a greater symbolic importance politically than it may may in its details and its details it looks like a you know it's a disaster it looks like a, a a combination of sort of regulatory and I don't know. Um, not malfeasance, but sort of incompetence. 
that kind of thing. And everyone's trying to f- assign blame to it and trying to assign blame to sort of lax regulations that were, re- re- uh, that were um, eased during the most recent Republican administration, which is sort of something we heard before. Um, but it do- it also represents, it crystallizes in a way I think would be un- uh, is un- un- unfortunate for people on the left that we are obsessed currently with things happening many, 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 many thousands of miles away from, uh, from us from economies that are happening that are thousands of years, thousand miles away, and we are ignoring a thing that's happening right here. It's like almost if you were writing a novel about it and you said it's going to happen in a town called East Palestine, um, you know, your editor would say something like, uh, come on, five more minutes on the name of that town. It's a little too on the nose. But, you know, sometimes the world and truth is on the nose. So, um. It, it, it suggests two things. One, it suggests that the, the regulatory environment is something that um, Democrats can run on and Republicans can run on, too, because once you start marching through East Palestine and saying, what, look what happened here, you're going to find it probably you're, you're making an argument for a more uh, for a, a more stringent regulatory state. Good or bad, I think that's going to happen politically. But you're also making the argument when you walk through here that, that wh- where, what are you focusing on? What are, where is your attention? And I, I was just noticing even today, just I sometimes do this while I'm reading the paper, looking, trying to find a thing that doesn't have anything to do with the climate and trying to see how the climate is mm-hmm. described in it. So the the selection of the new head of the World Bank, about two paragraphs in, I mean, it's sort of an interesting character. As he's a Sikh, he was born in India. And you, you find it, now we're talking about, the, it's the World Bank. Now we're talking about climate change as part of its mission. So, um, if you just add up all the words that people have spent, certainly Biden cabinet officials talked about climate change and how it should be part of your, the, the, the secretary of treasury is talking about it. And then you go to East Palestine, you say, what's your biggest concern? They're not going to say, well, my really biggest concern is the 0.001% chance that the temperature is going to rise in the next six years. It's going to be my biggest concern is a train derailing in my neighborhood and toxifying my home. Climate change and DEI have to be applied to absolutely everything, regardless as to whether or not it has anything to do with their mission. Right. But then you have a giant train exploding in chemical fire and you think to yourself, please, just for 10 seconds, let's not talk about the climate. And I feel like that is a that is something that I think the conservatives on the people on the right should be reminding us is that we have been concerned with trivial things instead of the actual nuts and bolts, the potholes, as it were, of life in america today and that what do you um, consider the true what do you think is the trivial thing climate change diversity no i Uh, what what the republicans are are, i thought you said that the republicans were concerned with with trivial things no no i I think it's a culture we have and our policymakers have they're obsessing on these sort of like rich people's like tiny little we used to call them like a high class problems to have you know um uh, and we sort of, you know, like we, what's what are the every debate we have now? And they lose the education establishment is diversity and what we're going to teach and blah blah blah, all that stuff. None of it has to do with mastery of English, the language that we speak, and mastery of complicated mathematics, which is going to be even more important, and mastery of the science science, which will be even more important going forward. None of it has to do with mastery or rigor. It all has to do with sort of this weird massaging of your social whatever your social. Uh, concerns are at that moment Luxury and we have terrorists. a gigantic environmental disaster in east palestine it is an environmental disaster and if you ask anybody 20 minutes before that train derailed to describe an environmental disaster they would say something like well you know the climate 
Well, no. If you're leaving East Palestine, the climate is the least of your troubles. So, Rob and James, now that Rob is saying, in effect, although Rob is, of course, he's saying it in a much more elegant way, but what he's saying, in effect, is, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and you know what? I had that moment. My first thought was, who does this kid think he is? And my second thought was, oh, and that, and I'm referring now to the declaration that he is running for president of the United States All right. by Vivek, and I'm not even sure I can pronounce his last name, Vivek Ramaswamy, as I recall. It, that I Forgive me, Mr. President, if I mispronounced it. But listen, so what has he got? He's a 37-year-old son of immigrants. He went to Harvard undergrad, Yale Law School. Both of those are counts against him, but he seems to have spent the rest of his life repenting. He's founded a company. He's now founded a fund so that you can invest in non-DEI companies. And now he has come out swinging, mm -hmm. just swinging. Um, let's see, what, what have we got here? The, the Supreme Court is about to over, looks as though it may be overturn affirmative action. As president of the United States, I will issue executive orders as stories, uh, eliminating affirmative action. The next time bureaucrats such as Anthony Fauci overreach the limits of their job, I will do what a president is entitled to do, fire them. It's so, I don't know that he, um, he doesn't know a thing about politics because he hasn't run for blah, 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 blah. But it is refreshing, isn't it? To hear somebody just say it, say well, it he all. He wants to shut down the Department of Education, which Bravo. is viewed, I mean, which, which is viewed by many progressives as proof that the Republicans want stupid workers to go slouching off to factories like the workers in the underground world of Metropolis, um, and that they want to fund all religious private schools, that they want the government to put everybody into religious private charter schools, et cetera, et cetera, which is not it not even close to what at all. Saying, but, still. Um, but but defunding the, the Department of Edu Education is just to them. You can't do that because it does such necessary work. And I'm I'm keen to know precisely what it does. How many students? I once, have? this is years ago, I once had breakfast with Bill Bennett not long after he'd become Secretary of Education. And I said, How is it? And he said, Well, the Secretary's office is on the, I think it was the eighth floor of the building. And he said, I get in the elevator and on the way from the ground floor to my office, I pass floor after floor after floor of people who are doing nothing but writing checks, sending other people's money. To other people. That's what the Department of Education does, said Bill Bennett. It just sends out money. And on the top floor, there's a bully pulpit. And I, Bill Bennett, intend to use it. But all that it all it is is a system for transferring wealth to the to, to teachers, to the education bureaucracy across the country. Furthermore, since Jimmy Carter established the Department of Education, can you name any any way in which education in America has gotten better? It's just the whole thing is ridiculous. No. He also wants to, and we're talking about Vivek here, make political, from his tweet, make political expression a civil right. What do you think he means by that? I thought it was, but... I thought it was, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. civil right. is, he meaning, is he meaning that people can bring civil suits if they're, uh, who knows, he may be making a legal point. I don't know. It, it could be that that you have the right to speak what you want without consequences, which 
you know, we all like, but the world right. doesn't work that way. There are there are social consequences that are perfectly legal to that. So, but I, but you you sense something in that that is that you know, it's like you want to say, do go on, as opposed to roll exactly. your eyes. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, he also wants to use our military to secure the border. How do you feel about that? That is a com- we want to secure the border for sure. It's a complicated one. I mean, it's a constitutional issue, but I'm I'm not mm-hmm. sure yep. we need the military. I mean, the question is the whether the I, I think that's a dumb a dumb way to put probably a smart idea and a dumb way to do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want the military under United States military commanders to be deployed domestically, which would be by definition where it would be deployed. You don't really want generals um, commanding troops in the United States. You you do want a robust and um, fully funded and held to account border mm-hmm. force to enforce the border. That's what's supposed to do. Um, so I think he's probably inartfully describing what he wants. My guess is that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. My guess is also, I, I really don't know. My guess is also that this guy, Vivek Ramaswamy also feels that we need to be strategic in our immigration policy. Uh, you know, a nation, you know, a national economic and cultural interest, which I think is a completely legitimate way. Absolutely. So there's nothing, your, there's nothing nativistic no. about it. There's nothing, no. there's nothing, there's nothing phobic about it. There's nothing xenophobic or immigrant hating about it. It, it, it just drives me crazy. This is, yeah. I mean, look, the, it's America Inc., right? I mean, partly what we have is a one gigantic, fractious, bumptious, chaotic company that we're running, America Inc. We all are shareholders in it. And uh, in many ways, the immigration arm should be two things. One is border control, meaning how you keep people out and how do you keep the order in. And the other is HR. Like, who do we want to hire? Who do we mm-hmm. want to bring into our big, bumptious company? You know, I like to bring in people probably like Vivek Ramaswamy. I want mm-hmm. to have more mm-hmm. people come in here, invent more things, make more businesses grow, do all good sorts of good stuff. That's that's a good thing. Um, and it's a good thing that somebody like that who's been extremely fortunate. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's worked very, very hard, but he's also been fortunate to be born and to live in a time and in a place like the United States and this in the 21st century that rewards entrepreneurial risk taking and vision. Um, I'm, I'm also kind of thrilled that he wants to sort of do this jump, jump into this thing. There's no way that Vivek Ramaswamy is going to come out of this process, not bruised and battered that's mm-hmm. what the political process is the fact that he's willing to do it is sort of that's great good for him I mean, talk more i say and hold everybody else to account yes but how, exactly right. the other part uh in my eyebrow went up spock like when it was if and affirmative action by executive action i hate executive actions and yeah. i hate that we get to the point where we're so impatient with the things that need to be changed that we applaud somebody who says well with a stroke of a pen i'll make it so i right I don't like that. Uh, the, the the way that this this huge, waddling, fat, lint-sticking ball of legislation every year rolls through without anybody actually reading it or interrogating the details. This is the problem, is ruling. We don't seem to cra- sit down and craft laws as we used to, or as we should. So I don't like that. I'm always on the watch for Caesarism. Mainly because everybody was saying when Trump, the year that Trump was elected, was well, we need a Caesar. 
we're going to get a Caesar no matter what. So it, it, it should be one of our Caesars right. over, over to American greatness. That was one of the but points they a, were making. Go on. Yeah. But in a way, the president of the United States is a Caesar of about, about two million employees. Right. He the, 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 the executive branch, the federal government has about two million employees. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he could do a lot by the stroke of a pen um, just in the just in the scope in his scope of work, he could do that. I mean, not necessarily making a law for everybody else. That's, that has to be legislated. I totally agree with you. But as, a, as the, the chief executive of the administrative branch, he could do a lot about how we run, how the federal government hires and fires. And I think that, you know, I mean, mostly it should be firing and not hiring. Uh, you know what, boys? Th- this whole thing, Vivek partly, but I'll tell you one other thing in a moment, has reversed my thinking about the presidential election my thought maybe a week ago was oh cheapers i really want desantis to win everybody else stay out of the field let it come down to trump and desantis and let i believe desantis can take him we can move ahead we can get past just those two and now i think to myself oh no is, is vivek actually going to run make a serious run for president a he might he might but even if he doesn't, he's saying things that are so sharp and so pointed and elicit such deep and immediate support from the Republican Party that even if he doesn't become a serious candidate, even if he doesn't win a single primary, every, in every debate, reporters again and again, debate moderators are going to be taking vivid quotations right. and reading mm-hmm. them back to Donald Trump and saying, Excuse me, Mr. Former President. Or DeSantis, excuse, for that matter. Or, or yeah. excuse me, Governor of Florida. You say you're running as a conservative. It sounds to us as though Vivek Ramaswamy is to your right. What do you make of that? This Just by running and running with such intelligence and forthrightness, he will tone up and make the whole tone up the race and make it smarter. The second person I want in the race is Tim Scott. I yeah. have now come. I want I want all these guys in. Tim Scott, I didn't know much about him, but I've looked into him a little bit. He's smart. He's upbeat. Yeah. He is an African-American who represents South Carolina. And so in his very being, he represents one of the thrilling, one of the most thrilling chapters of renewal and reform uh, in American history. I want him in. I want him. I want to let him all speak. Have you ever heard him speak, Tim, Tim Scott, in person? Uh, no, I haven't heard him in person. He's, actually, he's he's really good. Like yeah. you watch him, and you see some people, and you think, oh, you know, I can see why that guy's there. He's really good. He's got, um, you know, he's the, he's uh, he's got a lot of heart and a lot of story and a lot of religion. I mean, he is yes. he feels like an old timey American politician, uh, and I don't, I don't mean that in a fake way. I mean that in a real way. Like he can he can do the stem winder. He's got a story to tell. He's got there's the um, you know, right when we, you know, we feel like everything's lost, usually something comes and corrects it because the market kind of works that way. And it feels to me like there's a hunger. I mean, maybe I'm wishfully wishful thinking here for sort of some kind of real, like, yes, to be yeah. real and to not be uh, I mean, one of the reasons people like DeSantis so much. I think one of the reasons why I do like Trump was that he just seemed fearless. Right. You had this sort of string of presidents who were kind of cowed by the media and cowed by the TV camera. 
and like trying to like weirdly parse what they said over and over again. I remember this wonderful moment. And um, man, I, I, I absolutely respected and in many ways was, a, 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 I still think it was an underrated great president, George H.W. Bush. He is, uh, someone asked him, I'm like, You're sh- he's 18, shot down over the Pacific. And he's floating in shark infested waters, waiting to get rescued, not even sure if he's going to get rescued, clinging to some kind of debris to, to, for his life. He's 18, 19, I don't know, 19, just, he just graduated from high school. And someone says, what were you thinking? Because, well, you know, you think about everything, about your family, he said, you think about um, your life, you think about, um, you think about God. And then he said, and, and separation of church and state. <laughs> it's like what you were not floating the pacific circled by sharks thinking about the separation you just realized you said god and then you need to say uh, i'm not not god like not really G, like yeah no nah, nah. and like and that, that I, it was emblematic of sort of the ways certain and mostly these were like very competent guys who were not used to speaking in public or having or, or campaigning in any sense uh in any kind of wild way uh, generationally, they were not used to a camera everywhere. Uh, and then you have some politicians who are like, ah, you know what, I'm just going to say it. Uh, and I've thought about it. And having thought about it is the most important thing. So, um, you know, we might have an elevated, really kind of interesting conversation going into like, which is right, right on time about yes. what America yes. is going to be in 2020, 2030 and not beyond. What, uh, what, what we need to invest in, what we need to stop investing in uh what we need more of what we need no more of uh how we're gonna i mean i my, my offer still stands for everybody the education all the woke education crats which is like you can teach all the trans stuff you want you could teach critical race theory all you want that's going to be your reward for your students mm-hmm. achieving and proving a level of rigorous mastery of the most important things for the future once you've accomplished the mission, then you can have your dessert with your cherry on top. And if that means that high school seniors all over America know about uh, computer science and engineering and advanced math, and they speak and write English and maybe even another language with proficiency, if you want to make the senior year in high school the groovy year where you learn all about the other stuff, that, you know what, I'm, I'm in. Go right ahead. Because they have achieved something. No. If, if if I know, I know James if, if, does not like that. No, 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 but you don't get to hold anybody hostage. And the stu- parents who's, who do not want their kids to learn it get voucher programs and they get charter schools and you get to teach. Okay, I, I accept that. To whoever shows up in your classroom. But I guess what I mean Fair? is that Could this you go is that the, I use this, yeah. I, I do, but I, I guess what I, I'm just trying to tie to my general theory that we have you know big problems on the front burner. Yes. And East Palestine is an example of that. Right. We have trains running around with, uh, you know, stuff going on. And we have kind of a rail system in the country that we haven't probably paid enough attention to or invested enough in. And instead, we invest in stupid things. And what we need to do is they're like, let's accomplish the mission first. Let's make sure that 
the environmental disaster of East Palestine has been uh, mitigated and has been now prevented in the future. And then once that's happening, once everybody, when once there's plenty of plenty of like uh, industry happening, and maybe once we don't have to worry so much about importing foreign oil, and like can we have nuclear power here, whatever, then I'm all ears. Let's talk about the climate change that you are so obsessed with, because we'll have accomplished the mission. Now, you and I both know I'm being disingenuous because we'll never really accomplish. There's always going to, you know, we're not really going to do that, but. I, the the obsession with the trivial is uh, is what rich people do when they're just so like when they're just so bored and everything is so wonderful that they just they can't you know like I'm so bored I'm gonna uh, you know make a caviar omelet or like, you know what I mean like it just feels decadent yes. this obsession yeah. with like mm-hmm. these weird filigrees. And the, the idea that turning those things into a crisis, meanwhile, there's a city called East Palestine sort of like belching black fumes and toxifying itself. And meanwhile, the children are going through school and learning. It's learning things that are irrelevant to their lives tomorrow, right, but, to their but, earning potential. But that's the new mission. It's not accomplishing the mission per se. It's, re, it's redefining what the mission is. Is yeah, the mission right. to move the entire nation to a point where we are energy poor where we have no gas stoves. And again, that was a big conservative freak out, except it's what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and you know, they ban the appliances, new construction. They, I mean, it's not a freak out at all. Where, where people are paying a huge percentage of their income to, income to keep their home at 68 degrees, where they have to take shorter showers, where they have to, their entire life is built around accomplishing the mission of moving us to a sustainable grid, which is a preposterous idea at this point or is the mission to ensure that americans are warm in their homes without having to pay all of this money that american jobs are being created in the industry field that the safety like east palestine is guaranteed because we don't have tanker trucks rolling around we've got pipe we've got pipelines right Right. Which, which they would get. In other words, refocus everybody. The mission is not to electrify and change everything about your world and go to this other standard. The mission is to keep doing what we were doing before this priesthood of fanatics and timorous souls started insisting that the world was going to end because of climate change. And it's not. It's just not. And if that makes me a denier, that makes me a denier. That means, you know, Bjorn Lomberg. We can, those of us who say it's not a problem can work on the same page right. with Lomberg, who says that it is something to be concerned about. There is a coalition there to be done. But there's more yeah, virtue in public pra- praising all of these wonderful and new initiatives because they're sustainable. And the joy and the thrill you get in your heart when you drive across the prairie and you see those silent turbine things spinning. To, to me, it's the dark satanic mills of, you know, the old song, but that's another point. The other mission is not in education to let them have a year telling them that everything about their culture is. Poor. <laughs> I knew you'd hate that. I knew you'd hate, of course that. I hate it because, yeah. right. I get what I get what you're saying. Teach the basics yeah. first. But first of all, that assumes that even the basics that they are taught haven't already been infiltrated and tainted by the DEI and, and the CRT and all the rest of the little uh, alphabets we got going on here. If you say you have to read, it's important to know what they're reading. Is what they're reading part of the cultural heritage that actually they do require to function in, in right. Western society? Is indeed the math that they are learning 
actual true math or is it math that even in itself in its presentation has been infected by the way by 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 crt in the way these things are in the way the questions are posed you know johnny has six melons um did he get them through historical privilege you know i mean it's so i mean if you want to say they have to be able to read and they know the culture in which they exist and yes they know the math and yes they got a basics on stem and the rest of it then you can spend the last year filling their head at their most intellectually precocious age with the worst sort of anti-american poison you can remember no i i think that's an extremely bad idea i mean i I understand what you're saying i just think that when you have a large, a large big thing is the schools are failing. I don't think the schools are, I don't think they are effective in teaching woke ideology. I don't think they're effective at all. A kid that fails to pass a course on the 1619 project, and that's all the history he ever gets, has been sitting in the classroom listening to the 1619 project for the whole year. It, it, the, the, the terms of what they're failing at doesn't mean that they're not absorbing something. Speaking of absorbing something, that's what Russia has been trying to do with Ukraine. And now we have the anniversary of the uh, the invasion coming up. Sorry, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you doing an ad? I don't know. No, I'm grinding the gears. I'm grinding the gears to get to the guest who just show, showed up. And oh, right. We, you know, we right, have, right. We have, okay, lim- we have right. limited time. Right so ahead. yes, yes, yes. We, Sorry. We ought to, uh, with alacrity, get to our guest, Eli Lake. Uh, and glad he's here. Contributing editor for Commentary Magazine, host of the Re-Education podcast. Sounds familiar to what we've been talking about. He was our guest the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, it's been a year, and we didn't really think it'd get to the point where it's now a bloody slog. But let's figure out exactly where we are. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, where do things stand? Uh, in the war right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which one, right? Yeah, well, no, I mean, I think that the, um, the answer to your question is far better than anybody had predicted a year ago from the perspective of, you know, Western civilization and Ukraine. Um, it's pretty remarkable that um, we've relearned the lesson that I think, you know, sort of taking a, lo- a big step back, that tyrannies and dictators are not 10 feet tall. That, um, you know, I think a year ago, most of the experts looked at this and they said Russia had been a master of hybrid warfare, um, that they looked at the experience of the last, the, the first kind of Ukraine war, which wasn't really much of a war at all. Um, they didn't give the Ukrainians much of a chance. And most importantly, we ha- still had the hangover of the chaotic and terrible withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, where the elected president fled in the middle of the night. And so, you know, looking back on the year, it's remarkable that not only does that Zelensky has survived, but that, you know, the, the Ukrainian military, with our support, has proven capable of, of, of blunting you know, the invasion of a much larger country that we thought, you know, would sort of walk through it. Okay, so what next? What, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Russia's still there, and they're, yes. they're not backing out, and Putin doesn't seem to be... Now, apparently sometime today, maybe as we speak, according to the news yesterday, the State Department said that they're expecting China to float some sort of peace plan this very day. I don't know if that has happened yet, but the question is, you've got Zelensky saying we want to reclaim every bit of territory the Russians have taken, including the Crimea, and you've got Vladimir Putin saying, excuse me, we have the Crimea, and we also have a good piece 
of eastern Ukraine. And not only are we not leaving, we're going to move on to Kiev. And people are getting killed every day. How does it end? Well, I mean, it's not even how does it end? What's next? What should we do next? What should Zelensky do next if you were advising him in the next month? Well, if I was advising Zelensky, I would say, I mean, continue to fight back against the invasion. I do think that there's something that we can't possibly know. And that is, uh, what is the effect of uh, a war where lots of people who are being sort of thrown into this meat grinder from the Russian side, um, you know, that they have families, they have, you know, people who care for them back home. And what is the effect on the legitimacy of um of, of Putin's regime at this point. We can't see it because it is at this point, probably in terms of individual liberty back to almost Soviet times. But we know from the beginning of the war that there were lots of unusual voices that we'd heard, even from some oligarchs that were saying, wait a second, I don't know about this. And slowly but surely, um, you know, Europe has proven to be more resilient in this, re- in this respect. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the Europeans didn't cave over the winter, even though it was a mild winter for sure. Um, so there are certain kind of questions that, you know, how long can this necessarily keep up? And like, we'll see what happens with to the Chinese, because the other report we heard about China was that they were going to start arming Russia in this, right. which would sort of enter them into this conflict. They haven't done that yet. I'm surprised they haven't done that yet. So we'll sort of see. But I mean, this was a, I think that it's a blunder. And I don't know that we know the full extent of how much of a blunder it was for Vladimir Putin. Hey, Eli, it's Rob Long. Thanks for joining us. Can I ask a question? Like, um, just because you mentioned China. Uh, why, why are you surprised they haven't? It feels to me like if I were Chinese, that with my Chinese strategic hat on. I don't know if I want to throw my hat in the ring with Putin at this point. I might want to sit this one out and just kind of be, hey, listen, nothing, we're not, we got nothing to do. And in the meantime, make my quiet inroads when we're not paying attention in places like Africa and the border with India and go about my business. What's what's in it for them? It's a good question. I mean, let me let me let me sort of explain why I'm surprised they haven't done it yet. One, we have at least the pageantry, the diplomatic pageantry of summits between Xi and Putin and, you know, long, uh, I don't know, documents that claim that there are all these mutual cooperation between the two countries. Right. And that those have intent that, that we had that on the eve of the war when it was clear that he was going to invade. So that's the first part of it. And the second part of it is that I do think that to a certain extent, China has already cast its lot with Russia and Iran and the kind of rogue uh, tyrannies in the world, because it's better, I think, from the Chinese leadership's perspective, to have a world where um, the international system kind of remains in their favor. And that, you know, a, a world where the United States and European countries are determining kind of the rules of the international system is ultimately not a world that the Chinese want to live in, despite the fact that for the last I don't know, almost 50 years, if you want to count Nixon's visit to China, um, you know, the United States has has repeatedly sort of said, please join, you know, the uh, become, become a great power and, and, and coexist right. with us. So 
in that respect, I kind of felt like, well, the Chinese have already cast their lot, so why wouldn't they? But then you're right. Um, this looks like um, a kind of incompetent move. And, and I mean, who, who would have predicted how bad the Russian military is? I wish I would have remembered all of the right. lessons that we learned at the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. It was corrupt. There were all these reports that, you know, nobody was getting the serious information going up the chain. When they came in, I love this story. When the Russians first invaded, their secure communication system didn't work. So they were basically using cell phone towers, even though they were there. Right. They were attacking the cell phone systems. And so it was very easy for the Ukrainians to pinpoint the locations of senior generals who were was, being killed at a high clip. It was amateur hour. Well, I mean, so, so I guess my question is like, is this feels to me like Turkey coming in at the end of World War I on the side of the Kaiser. No, that's interesting. Um, I mean, we'll see what happens with the Chinese, whether they actually yeah. do it or not. Um you know, but I don't, I mean, I think that there, is, there are serious problems. I mean, what is the quality of Russian forces now that they're, what, conscripts? We've seen reports that they're being recruited yeah. from Russian prisons. Is that, how's that going to work out? I mean, the, America learned a painful lesson. We never had to do anything like this in the Vietnam War, which was that at a certain point, one of the problems was because we had conscription, we had a draft, the morale of everyday kind of soldiers on the front lines was so bad that there were these incidents of known as fragging and things like that. That right. happens, you know, especially when it's kind of a hopeless fight like this, where, you know, where's the, where, you know, who's, how, how would a Russian, if you're fighting this in the, you know, day to day, how would you be motivated? Right. Would you feel morally like you had a, a right to this war or anything like that? I can't see. Right. So, so it, it, you can just stand it for a little bit to leave China for a second. It feels to me like the strategy is this. Each person's strategy is we're going to keep going because we have, and if you were Putin and the Wagner group, and we, we have people and convicts and conscripts, and we can keep throwing them at trenches uh, until the other side gets tired. And the other side is saying, well, listen, we have these rich friends and they've got, you know, leopard tanks and no planes yet the planes might come and we can keep asking them to send stuff and we have people and we are motivated to fight i mean the most interesting thing to me about the ukrainian the ukraine russia war is that the ukrainians are motivated to fight they are not given in um right. and we can keep going until you're tired and the real question we have to ask us the only thing it seems to me the only variable here is are the russians or the Russian leadership, are they tired of Putin? So my question is, how bad is the information coming to that big table where Putin sits? Is it still as bad as it was a year ago or six months or a year and six months ago when he thought he could just like kind of like waltz his way into Kiev? Or is it getting mm -hmm. better and darker and better and darker? And I guess what I mean is um, you've seen the movie down everybody's seen the movie Downfall, right? Yeah, There's that moment in the movie Downfall where they come in and the Fuhrer is sitting there at his table and his hands are shaking and stuff. And he goes, well, you look in the map, he goes, you know what? Steiner's counterattack, he says, pointing to the map of Berlin, which is sort of encircled by uh, the Allies coming and the Russians coming. Steiner's counterattack is going to turn this all around. And then someone's got to say, my Fuhrer, I'm sorry to tell you that there's no Steiner and there's no counterattack. And there's no, there is his, he's in command of nothing.
And then that's when the great, you know, the oh, internet has exploded with memes of this. But this I'm, seems I'm, like I'm doing a little shaking hands yeah, right yeah, now. As I I'm can see it off yeah. my glasses. <laughs> this scene, it's a great scene. If you haven't seen, if you're listening oh. to this podcast, you have not seen the scene. Just it's fantastic. <laughs> this seems like we are waiting for that moment to happen somewhere in the Kremlin. Is anyone in the Kremlin going to deliver well, that I, moment? I wonder if that moment is less determined by some military maneuver in Ukraine and more determined by the reaction in Europe. And what I mean by that is, look at, mm-hmm. for example, every month, it seems, or a few weeks, we have a Russian official who will say, uh, we might have to use our strategic arsenal, which is code mm-hmm. word for nuclear weapons. We saw the big announcement, the takeaway from Putin's you know, delusional speech this week to mark the one-year anniversary uh, was I am suspending uh, participation in the remaining nuclear treaty with the United States. So there are all these efforts to try to say, wait a second, you don't want this to get even worse. And they're counting on either Democratic administration or the Germans, you know, the French, the British, to basically kind of say uncle and, um, you know, say, okay, we can't let it get this far. I am pleasantly surprised that the Biden administration and um, the Europeans, you know, it hasn't been perfect. They, I, I would have liked for them to, you know, not had an open debate about sending tanks, but they eventually land on the right square. And that's great. And I think that that's the thing that you're seeing where you know, Putin can see all of that for himself because he's used to getting his way Um in other sorts of things. I mean, like, you know, there was a, when he invaded Georgia and, you know, took up Kazia and North Ossetia in 2008, there was an election, Barack Obama came in. And the first thing Obama does in foreign policy is announce a policy called the reset, which is where we're going to ignore what you just did and try to have a good relationship with you. Why? So we can have this treaty known as New Start, which Putin just announced that he was no longer going to be complying with, which, by the way, he hadn't been complying with. So he's betting on the sort of old Europe, the old Democratic Party to, you know, emerge and say, um, all right, all right, all right, all right, uncle, all right, fine, it can't get too bad. The irony, of course, is that the Democrats have stood strong, much, you know, much to my surprise in some ways. And it's this new Republican, the nationalist wing of the Republican Party, if you want to call it, the J.D. Vances, those are the ones that are saying, let's stop throwing good money after bad in Ukraine, and it's none of our business. Okay, so let's take on, if I, Eli, I'm going to put an argument, and the argument runs as follows. Zelensky wants to fight. As Rob noted, as you noted, one of the surprising things is that they are not tiring. And Zelensky says he wants to regain every inch of territory that includes the Crimea, that includes Sevastopol, which has been Russian, even if technically Ukrainian. It's been, Sevastopol has been Russian since 1783, five years before we ratified the constitution. Okay. So if, sorry, I'm putting an argument here. You can count on Zelensky to fight as long as we arm him. You can count on, as you've just established, you can count on the Europeans to be willing to fight as long as we give them cover as long as we lead the way. So what Putin is counting on when you say he's counting on the other side to tire, he's counting on us to tire. It all comes down to the United States. All right. Now then, let's take 
the art. Let's take the scenario under which we continue to arm Zelensky. We want to push, 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 because so far they keep they keep bluffing about nuclear weapons. And now let's return to Rob's moment in the bunker and imagine it this way. Uh, mein Fuhrer, I'm sorry I have to tell you there is no Steiner. There will be no conventional counterattack. But, Mein Fuhrer, you still have tactical nuclear weapons. That strikes me as something we, oft, we are forced to take into account. We can't just dismiss it. Oh, they're bluffing, they're bluffing, they're bluffing. They keep saying that he's dropping out of a treaty. They keep... It seems to me that we need to take that into account, don't we? If J.D. Vance and David Sachs and other highly intelligent people say, wait a minute here, let's not get ourselves dragged into a nuclear exchange, uh, they're not wrong about that, are they? Well, well, okay, A, nobody wants a nuclear exchange, obviously. Obviously. And um, I don't know that, um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult proposition. I disagree with David Sachs. I had a tweet the other night saying, I don't understand how you could take Russia's side of the war. I wasn't talking about him. I think there are plenty of people who can make principled arguments, even though I disagree with them, and I don't want to say that they're on Russia's side. And right, by the way, right, that's right. A, it's a, as you know, that's a nasty... Um, an unfortunate development in our politics that yeah, largely and we is on both, the Democratic yeah, We can side. stipulate, yeah. say, David, David Sachs and J.D. Vance, those two at least are highly intelligent, good people who are also our friends. We stipulate that. But, but, okay. we, but, but I think they're wrong. they're wrong in the final sense because even, let's say that we sort of deter ourselves in this in this regard and we say all right you know eventually they might use a tactical nuclear weapon and they're right they might be bluffing you know the last 20 times but the 21st time they won't be bluffing and then it's a real problem um well then we've established a new world in which um you know nuclear powers that are autocrats get to basically blackmail their way to what they want and sooner or later we're going to have to confront them unless we're willing to give away a lot more than just ukraine so that's the first point, which is that you don't want to establish that precedent, that that's how you get to win the war is because you play the nuke card. Um, but the second thing is this. I don't know that it, it makes, if you think that Putin is rational uh, and he's making decisions here that are in you know his, country, his best interest as he sees it, uh, that hurts him if he uses a nuclear weapon like that. I think it hurts him with China. China has an interest... Um, itself being a nuclear power, of not having this, you know, they have to worry about India. I mean, there's a lot of things there where he's opening his own Pandora's box if he does that, where, you know, if China was to, say, really turn on Russia because it's been economically supporting the Russians in this period, um, well, then Putin probably really is finished, you know. So I don't know that it's that we we have to assume that he would use tactical nuclear weapons, even though I am aware that it is part of this Russian military doctrine that they would lose it if they were, you know, and that there are all these sorts of important distinctions that we have to understand that that Russians believe that if they have to defend their own territory now that they've declared the oblasts that they you know, took over in the war as part of their territory. They could then use, you know, all of that. I understand that that serious kind of criminologists will like think about all that. I'm taking taking a step back, looking at it. Um, I think that there, it's not entirely clear that he would do that, and there'd be huge, huge problems, not just from America, from the entire world, and I think including China, if he did. So I don't. I would not want to give into it. And to my surprise. Uh, even though Biden did have this lapse at a fundraiser a few months ago, I don't know if you remember this, like in September, he said something along the lines of like, it'll be World War III, it'll be terrible. 
Um, for the most right. part, the Biden administration has been really good in not being rattled by these threats, which is clearly part of the Russian strategy. Or as one gouty, jolly Russian general said the other day on Russian state television, that the, at this point they have to reduce Kiev to rubble and plant the flag on the top of it. So, you know, they just knew Kiev and call it a day. Uh, before we let you go, Eli, there is now there are now reports that Prigozhin is being a persona non grata in the Russian state media. He, he, they will no longer mention anything that he says unless it's a report of a victory, because he went on this long diatribe about how the the, uh, the Wagner group is having a ammunition famine, that they're not getting supplies, that they're not being supported. And apparently um, this isn't going down very well with the with the guys up top. Of course, he's he's replaceable. They all are. But when I read, as I have recently, that that the the group is actually having trouble recruiting in prison, then perhaps the manpower and the shell drought uh, happens a little earlier than people expected. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to. I don't know what to make of that because my, you know, history would teach us that Russia has a very huge supply of bodies. And it can, it, it can, if it wants to extend this war, just because it's willing to accept far more casualties than a lot of other countries. Yep. Um, but uh, it's interesting to see, you know, Putin's important allies maybe breaking with him. Um, that's always good to see. And, you know, I thought, I, my hope is, I don't think anybody really knows, but my hope is that the CIA and the FBI right now are using the current environment to go after other oligarchs that are close to Putin and sort of seeing who might want to hedge their bets. Um, I mean, now is the time to do that. And so, you know, slowly but truly, and it's something I just would stress, I mean, this is not revelatory or anything. We cannot know. We cannot know what the real situation is like in his inner circle and what what's happening inside that black box um, inside the Kremlin and his regime at this point. Um, we can s- speculate it, but we really just can't know. But I just would say, I mean, let's, I don't, I do not assume that, that everything is running smoothly and that everything is okay. French warfare, war in Europe and Putin shuttling back and forth in his private car on a, on a railroad. It's, it's just like the last hundred years never happened. Except right. for the news. <laughs> Eli, thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, I, hope we're not, I hope we're not talking to you at the second anniversary of the war. Well, I feel we may, I hope but, that Ukraine prevails. Yeah. Uh, Slavic Ukraine. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to thanks you later. Eli. Uh, gentlemen, before we go, and we have been blathering on here for a while, we should probably mention, as Rob loves to do, to remind people that Ricochet is actually an enterprise that has uh, a real-world analog. It's not just one of those cyber things yeah. that... That was a hint, Rob, to oh, talk sorry. about. Yeah, I, I was just agreeing with you and nodding. <laughs> yeah, it's right. I mean, look, uh, there's this is fun and all. We love to hear, have you listen to the podcast. We'd love to see you on site. We'd love to have conversations with you uh, virtually um, on the site. But it's also fun to get together. So we have meetups. They really do happen, and they're fun, and we have a bunch coming up. Uh, you can meet the actual king of stuff, John Gabriel. He will be in an event he's hosting in Phoenix in mid-March. A bunch of us are going to be in New Orleans for French Quarter Fest, and that's also, I think it's in early April. Um, uh, and there's uh, there's a, a, a member, Flickr, has set April 22nd as a date for the Stillwater, Minnesota meetup. I hope I can make it if I'm not James. in Barth- yeah, I, if I'm not in Barcelona, as I have to say now, um, uh, I'll, I, I yeah, hope yeah, I yeah. make it. 
Uh, but look, those are just what's coming up in the next, I don't know, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. If, and if they're too far away or for whatever reason you can't make it and you want to, then here's the solution. You just join. Join Ricochet. Put on, the, put on a member fee that you want to have a meetup closer to you and on a date that works for you. And guess what? Something, one will happen because people who are members of Ricochet like to travel. They like to get together. It's always a good time. Details of everything I've just described quickly uh, are uh, more specifically uh, illuminated uh, at Ricochet. Just go to ricochet.com slash events. You can look at it on the sidebar. It's right there. Uh, and if you want to come, join, and we will be happy to see you. In fact, if you I join... If you join because of this, James, think of a secret word. A secret. Say, think of a word and then and then say it on the podcast. Is that what you're saying? Do you want me to just... Okay, if you join, if you hear this and you join, and, and I see you in New Orleans when I'll be there at the French Quarter Fest, if you say to me, James told me to tell you to buy me a drink, I will buy you a drink. <laughs> There but don't go. not if you're already a member, don't you know I'm not I'm not a I'm not Mr. Moneybags here. Just if you join, um say that secret code word and uh, I'll buy you a drink. If you join Ricochet, I want you to tell Rob to buy you the 24-year-old McGallan. Yeah, that's not him. happening. Yeah. <laughs> the hurricane out of the hurricane or the shark attack out of the freezing machine. I mention a Spanish city, and you say "ay ay ay." That's uh, that's uh, oh. I, right there. We're going to get complaints. Paul Although it's actually not not a Spanish city, a Catalonian city, I suppose. Barcelona. You know that that's what we have to say now. I mean, I was informed of that by a, a Barcelonian, but I, I guess that's that's how it's pronounced. Uh, well, you know, it depends. That's actually kind of controversial, James, because people in who speak Catalan, they mm -hmm. say Barcelona. They don't say Barcelona. The people uh, who are not from Barcelona say Barcelona. People from Madrid say that. So, like, when you're there, you can say, but it depends on, on, on what your your origin is. But the Catalan separatists say Barcelona. On. This is my very Catalan, my, very my Catalonian is, exchange student. I'm sorry. My wife is seated right behind me at the moment, and she's shaking her head in disbelief at this conversation. Let me get a ruling on this from someone who actually knows Spain well. How is Barcelona pronounced? My cousins who are from Barcelona say Barcelona. Barcelona. From people uh, what who I live tell you? in Barcelona, my wife. All right. Well, I, I, far be it for me to. Uh, I will never contradict Mrs. Robinson. Uh, but however, she does admit that that is the Spanish. Right, right, yeah. Pronouncing Barcelona I had a, Catal Spanish. I had a Catalonian living in my house for five months. God bless her. So this, you know, I I know from what I speak. She made me the paella. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You I always are, feel like I'm leaving enough. out a couple of syllables. I'm from North Dakota, where things are plain and simple. We don't have words like paella. <laughs> no, but you do call it North Dakota. It could be You're right. North. We've been North North Dakota. <laughs> North Dakota. North Dakota would be perfect. N O R S E Dakota. Was I'm just telling you. I just Googled it. The correct pronunciation <laughs> of Barcelona in Catalan. Okay. Not Spanish. But yes. Catalan is Barcelona. Okay. In Spanish, it's Barcelona. Barcelona. Okay. Uh, well, now, you may I, disagree, but that's uh, take it up with Google. Well, then I got a job to do when I go there, informing each and every one of them <laughs> that the Google informs them that they are all incorrect. Can't wait. Um, however, um, I have to say that uh, we're done. 
podcast was brought to you by Youth Switch. Support them by supporting us and support us and support them, vice versa. Nice one hand washes the other thing. And we mentioned that you can indeed join Ricochet. Go there, find out why. Uh, and also, if you could just take a minute. No, I'm sorry. If you could take 48 minutes to craft the perfect five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate that. I- I'm not going to tell you that you should just dash something off in 10 seconds. I want you to give it a lot of thought. I want you to be like here in Rob Long's <laughs> senior year after everything has been fixed and you're writing an essay on something like that. And uh, that's all I got. Peter, Rob, it's been great. We'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 for now. Next week. Next week, boys. Next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.